appreciate you all coming back tonight. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to, to lead the, the study of the evening. I'm also thankful I'm not covering the subject that Uncle Hugh covered this morning. But I do think that we are going to cover some things that, that are important for each of us. And I hope that they challenge you to examine your life and see where you're lacking. To see what you need to change. I've entitled my lesson, Go Ye Means Go Me. And no, I did not come up with that clever title. I'm not that clever. That's a book I, I saw a long time ago, but it stuck with me. But I think the idea of the message or, or the title that Go Ye Means Go Me is what I want to cover tonight. And of course, that's a quote from Matthew 28, verse 19, the Great Commission, when Jesus said, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. When you read that commission that Jesus gave, do you think it applies to you? If he was to ask you, how are you doing when it comes to going and, and fulfilling that great commission, would he say you're doing a good job, a bad job, an adequate job, or not doing it at all? I want to cover three basic things from uh, in our topic or in our sermon this evening. Number one, being a disciple of Christ means that we're going to be evangelistic. If we're not evangelistic, we're not fulfilling our duty as disciples. Number two, I want to look at God's plan for evangelism. How God planned for, uh, for the gospel or for um, His kingdom to spread. And then number three, anyone and everyone can evangelize. No one should say that they are unqualified. So that's the, the roadmap for our study tonight. I want to begin by first looking at the idea that if you're going to be a disciple of Christ, that means that you're going to be like Him. The way that He taught, the way that He visited with people, the way that He put a fork in the road during the conversations that He had with people and challenged them to be more spiritually minded. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That was his purpose while he was here on this earth. He came to this earth specifically to save mankind. And as we see him interact with people in the, the land that he lived, he was always about his father's business. He was always looking for those that he could save. Can we say the same about ourselves today? In Luke chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. Our goal as Christians is to be as much like Jesus as possible. Jesus was seeking and saving the lost. Are we? Do we have that purpose in our minds? in our hearts, and in our actions. I stand before you tonight ashamed because I know that has not been my purpose. I've prayed to be evangelistic. I've sung the songs like Send the Light and Zion's Call, Seeking the Lost, Ring Out the Message, Oh, Spread the Tidings Round, on and on and on. I've prayed it. I've wanted to do it. But yet, I 
have struggled with that. And I want to do better. I look at Jesus' life and I look at mine and I've wasted so many opportunities and neglected my responsibility to share the gospel and to take the scriptures with me everywhere I go. I've been too caught up in my desires and my will and materialism and entertainment and a pursuit of wealth where I work so hard and then I'm so tired I don't want to open up my scriptures. I just want to, when I get home, I just want to stare at the TV. Jesus' purpose was to seek and save the lost. Are we caught up in the things of this world to we're not like our teacher? We're not like our master? If we want to be a disciple, we have to be evangelistic. In Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, the Bible says, As he, speaking of Jesus, walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Jesus called Simon and Andrew and said, If you want to follow me, you are going to become a fisher of men. And the same is true for you and me today. If we are going to be Christians, that is going to be a part of our life following Christ. Now you say, well, they were apostles. Not yet. It wasn't until two chapters later in Mark 3 that he appointed apostles. He was just calling, calling followers. So go ye means go me for each of us if we're going to be a true disciple. Next, I want to look at God's plan for evangelism. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, Paul in his letter to Timothy says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God has a sincere, a deep desire for all of man to know two things, or to do two things, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. Is that our desire? It was a, his desire. And so he acted upon that desire and created a way, a message that would provide that salvation and that knowledge of the truth. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. God chose the gospel to be the way of salvation. The gospel that we know from 1 Corinthians 15, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's power in it. Power to save. Power beyond anything we can imagine here in this world and in this physical realm. It's power to wash souls clean. To transform lives. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21, we read about the way the gospel is uh, exchanged between two people. It's preached. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. God chose the way of transmission for the gospel to move from one person in one place to another was through preaching. He could have chosen any way to do that. He could have pulled the, the sky aside like a curtain and said, hey, Humans, listen to me. I'm God. Here's the gospel. But he chose earthen vessels. He chose you and me to be participants in taking the gospel to the world.
And we do it through preaching. And we come now to the verse that we started off with, Matthew 28, beginning with verse 18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So as Jesus was about to ascend to heaven, these were his final words. His final words, his last things that he was going to leave his disciples. Do you think these were important ideas and important thoughts on his mind? They absolutely were. And he leaves them the Great Commission with three specific things. They were to go, they were to baptize, and teach those that they baptized to observe all the things that I've commanded you. This was the best marketing strategy ever put in place and from this moment Christianity has spread throughout the globe beginning in Jerusalem and Israel and spreading throughout the globe and it's all because someone told someone who told someone who told someone who told someone and each of us are here tonight and each of us have a relationship with Christ tonight because someone was willing to take a chance and share the gospel with us The question is, does that chain stop with you? Do you neglect to share the gospel? Do you neglect to tell others about Christ? Do you neglect to teach people the truth? Does the chain stop with us? We live in a culture that's very anti-proselytizing. Many people believe that their souls are, are right, that they have the truth, that everything they do is okay. And it's uncomfortable to talk about people being wrong, especially when it comes to spiritual matters. And so I think we use the phrase, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words almost as a crutch. I've heard that. I don't know who said it. I don't know where it came from. But I've heard that oftentimes. And the idea is good. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. But I think we take it to the extreme, and we say, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to live it out right. And I'm not going to stir up any problems. And then they can ask me because of my actions. They can ask me about my relationship with God or, or the such. Here's the problem with that. There are good people who are atheists. There are good people, good moral people who uh, follow other men besides Christ. There are good people who have a false sense of their relationship with Christ. How are we going to distinguish ourselves unless we're willing to open, our, open up our mouths and speak? It's simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is inherently verbal, and preaching the gospel is inherently verbal behavior. In the Bible, we're instructed to use our words and not simply proclaim, proclaim by our deeds. In fact, simply preaching the gospel by our acts alone is not biblical. God's plan for evangelism was to go, baptize, and to teach. And that requires us to do our part, to open up our mouths, and to tell others. But if we don't, the rhetorical question of Romans chapter 10, verse 14 becomes true. 
How then shall they call on him of whom they have not believed? How then shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? If we're not willing to open up our mouth and to share that gospel, share the truth, people will not be able to believe. So Jesus commanded his disciples to preach. And as we look through the book of Acts, that is exactly what they did. They were intentional, they were vocal, they were verbal, and they did not waste the opportunity they had. In Acts chapter 2, we remember what happened on the day of Pentecost. The disciples or the apostles were uh, baptized by the Holy Spirit and they received the gift of the Spirit. They were able to speak in many different languages and all the people were saying, what's going on? Were people saved at that moment? Were people converted? Had people's lives been transformed and changed? No. It wasn't until Peter got up and spoke. In Romans 2 verse 14, Peter standing up with the eleven raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. Skipping down to verse 40, the Bible says, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be safe from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Peter preached, and that's when lives were changed. That's when people understood the gospel. The miracles would have been for naught if Peter wouldn't have st stood up and began to speak. In Acts chapter 4, after a man was healed in Solomon's, uh, the Solomon's porch, part of the temple, they preached. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed, that they taught the people and preached. In Jesus, the resurrection from the dead, they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed. It wasn't the healing. It was the word that caused people to believe. In Acts chapter 5, verse 42, the Bible says, Daily in the temple and in every house they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This wasn't just a Sunday event. They were in each other's homes. They were in the temple teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. It was something that was a part of every day of their life. In Acts chapter 8, verse 4, we read after the martyrdom of Stephen, the Jews were trying to stomp out Christianity but instead they caused it to spread like wildfire. Those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. They didn't stop preaching just because Stephen died. They kept telling others. In Acts chapter 8, we read of Philip. He went down to the city of Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing. And they believed Philip as he preached. Acts chapter 9 Saul, after he was converted, immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues. Acts 11, the disciples took the gospel to Antioch, preaching the word. Acts 16, when the Philippian jailer asked them what they had to do to be saved, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. In Acts 17, we follow Paul as he goes into the synagogues. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded. By what? By his words. Later on in Acts chapter 17, verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers. 
And skipping down to the bottom of verse 18, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Do we see over and over and over and over how that preaching was the way that they evangelized? It was through the words that they said. Preaching is a part of evangelism. In Acts chapter 17, verse 6, the Bible says, But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Christians were considered those who had turned the world upside down. They couldn't understand what was going on. Why is it this way? It was because the people kept teaching and preaching. They were convicted, they were determined, and they had faith that this message changed lives. So, are we capable of doing that today? Can we turn the world upside down? Do you have faith that the, the message of the gospel can change lives? The same power is still in that word. Do you think Satan believes that the gospel can change lives, can, can turn the world upside down? He does. So what is he going to do about it? He wants us to not be bold with the scriptures. He wants us not to tell others. He wants us to keep it to ourselves and to be ashamed of the gospel. But we see in the first century that the church boldly took the gospel wherever they went. Now, a lot of the passages we just read were Paul teaching and preaching. It was Peter and Philip. Was it just these guys and the apostles who turned the world upside down? Was it just these men who were responsible for the growth of the church? As we look through the writings of Paul and the epistles that he wrote, we see that he was not alone in his labors. He wrote specific epistles to Titus and to Timothy and Philemon, men who he loved and had spent time working in the gospel. And in the epistles to churches, oftentimes when you look at the very last chapter of these epistles, Paul would say, greet this person, greet that person, greet these people who I've labored with in the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 16 and Colossians 4, Philippians 4 and others, he does this. But this is really seen in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 16. And I want to go through this and I want to just look at the names that Paul mentions. People that we know of, but people, some people that we never read anything about what they do. In Romans chapter 16, Paul says, I commend to you Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church in Centria, that you may receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever business she has in need of you. For indeed, she has been a helper of many, of my, of many and of myself also. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risked their own necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Greet my beloved Eponidas, who is the firstfruits of Achaia to Christ. Greet Mary, who labored much for us. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my countrymen and my fellow prisoners, who are of note among the apostles, who also were in Christ before me. Greet Amplius, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, approved in Christ. Greet those who are of the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my countrymen. 
Greet those who are of the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trophina and Trophosa who have labored in the Lord. Greet the beloved Persis who labored much in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brethren who are with him. Greet Philologus, I've struggled with this, and Philologus, and Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with him. Greet one another with the holy kiss, a kiss. The churches of Christ greet you. So I pronounce all those words and I messed up on kiss. That, that works out. The point is, Paul didn't do it alone. And he was the main focal point, and he was where Luke followed most closely, but all these other people were contributing. And we don't get to know exactly what they all did, but it was a team effort. It wasn't just Paul. It wasn't just the apostles. It was a team effort. We see the church in Acts embody what we see Paul talk about in Ephesians chapter 4. In verse 11... Paul says, and he, speaking of Christ, gave, gave himself some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We live in a professional society, don't we? If you have questions about taxes, you go to your CPA. About the law, you go to a lawyer. Medically, you go to a doctor. And sometimes that idea is, is found in the church. The people who do church work are those who are trained, those who are schooled, those who are professionals in it. But that is not what Ephesians 4 talks about. The Bible says that the offices that are found in the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, it's not their job just to do all the work. But they're to train others so that we all can be equipped and have the tools necessary to do the work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. We're all supposed to be working. Skipping down to verse 16, he compares the body of Christ to the the human body. And he says, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So the church will grow when we implement God's principles, when we follow his pattern, and when we follow the example of the church in Acts, when every part is doing its share. There's things that you can do that I cannot. There are things that someone else can do that neither one of us can do. It's all working together using our talents and abilities that causes the growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So, that's God's plan. That's God's plan for evangelism, is for each of us to be out interacting with those that we come into contact with and telling them the good news, sharing the gospel with them. Now, you might be thinking, yes, but... I don't understand the scriptures well enough. Maybe you think I've got a pretty bad reputation in this town and I'm not qualified. Maybe you think that you're not skilled or eloquent or have the ability. Maybe you've got sin in your past and you think that you cannot participate in evangelism. 
Well, I want to open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. And we're going to read most of this chapter, so I'm not going to have it on the PowerPoint. But I encourage you to open up your scriptures. And I want to read the story of the person I'm calling the most unqualified evangelizer. This is the story of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. And we see a woman whose life is transformed. She meets Christ. What does she do after she meets Christ? Let's begin in John chapter 4, verse 3. <clears throat> he left Judea and departed again unto Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Then said the woman to, of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, asketh a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldst have asked, him, asked of him, and he would, give, he would have given thee living water. The woman said unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep, from whence then hast thou the, that living water. Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whoever drinketh this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that the Messiah is come, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. So we'll stop right there for a second. Uh, there's a, a lot of meat in this conversation that we're just not going to cover. But what we see here is a woman comes to the well to do a, a mundane task. She's done this every day for a long time. But Jesus is there. Here's a Jewish man. Uh, and he asked her to give him a drink. That was odd. He crossed a cultural boundary. Because Jews did not have anything to do with Samaritans, especially Jewish rabbis or Jewish men interacting with Samaritan women. But Jesus starts a conversation, and over that conversation, he offers her living water. He offers her a satisfaction to a desire that she had never been able to quench. She doesn't understand. She doesn't know it exactly. 
Over the conversation, he reveals that he realizes or he knows that she's had five different husbands, five failed marriages, and now she's just living with a guy. She gave up on marriage completely. Ultimately, the woman said in verse 25, I know that when the Messiah comes, which is called Christ, when he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says, I am that Messiah. So he offers her living water and she's found it. The joy that she has, the excitement, the faith, she's found the living water. She's found the bread of life. She's found the pearl of great price. What is she going to do with it? She keeps it to herself, she goes back home, and she never tells another person. No, that's not what she does. Let's pick up and read verse 27. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him aught to eat? Jesus saith unto, unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye, there are yet four months, and then cometh harvest. Behold, I say unto you, Lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. But herein is that saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon you bestowed no labor, other men labored, and you are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans in that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. And many more believed because of his word, his own word, and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That is an awesome, awesome story. We find a woman who by every means, was unqualified for the job. She was a woman. Not only that, she was a Samaritan woman. Her religious views were wrong because of her upbringing. She had a life of sin. She was living with a guy right that moment. If there was any person who was unqualified to do evangelistic work, it was this woman. But she didn't come up with excuses. She didn't make excuses. She had found that precious pearl of great price and she could not help but take it to her city. I hope you believe this tonight. If this woman is qualified for evangelism, anyone is. Each of us can participate. Each of us can do our job. Jesus didn't say, you who know all the scriptures and have all the answers to all the difficult Bible questions, go into the world. He just said, go. Jesus did not say, you who have lived a perfect life and never made a mistake, go. That's not what he said. He, said, he never said, you who are eloquent and studied and have talents and abilities and training, 
go. No. There's no qualifications. Any of us can go. Now, this woman, she didn't have a big toolbox of things to say. She wasn't ready to go debate the, the, the religious leaders in her city and to debate aspects of the law. She wasn't capable of doing that. And she didn't go do that. What was she able to do? Come and see a man who told me all I'd ever done is this Messiah. She gave her testimony of her experience with Jesus. I met this man who could tell me things that no normal man can do. Why don't you see for yourself? That's all she said. But the conviction and the passion and the transformation the people saw in her caused them to want to check it out for themselves. This woman planted a seed that she could not harvest. She was not ready to finish the job. And that's why Jesus told the apostles, Look, the fields are wide to harvest. You're about to reap where you have not sown. The woman sowed the seed, and these people were coming out to find out for themselves. So let me ask you, who was more important in, in converting the city? Was it the woman? Or was it the people who finished the job? The one who reaped the spiritual harvest? Who was more important? Neither. They were both important. And you ask any farmer in this room to not, which is the most important part of your operation? The planting equipment or the harvesting equipment? They're going to say both are important. This woman sowed the seed. She did what she could. And she pretty much all she did was she set up a Bible study with the men, out, uh, the men and with Jesus. And those apostles and Jesus were able to answer the questions that she could not. So tonight, you may view yourself more like the woman. Maybe all you can do is give your testimony, and all you can do is tell people why you have a hope within you, and say, but I want to set up a study with one of our elders or another person so that you can have this for yourself. Maybe that's all you can do. If it is, do it with the zeal of the woman. Maybe you're more on the side of the apostles or Jesus, and you have a greater skill set. Do it with the same zeal of the woman. So in conclusion tonight, what can I do now? What are we supposed to do? I want us to think about the words that Jesus said in John 4, 35. Do, not, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Jesus said, don't put it off. There's work to be done in the fields. And if Jesus was here tonight, he would say, look up. There's people who need salvation in Plainview and the surrounding communities. There's people that you interact with that need the truth. It's time to get to work. Don't put it off and say, oh, it's, it's only four months. It's, we can always do it later. Don't put it off. We need to be doing the work now. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 through 38, the Bible says, When Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Don't think that there's enough people laboring already. The laborers are few. There's 
plenty of work to be done. We don't have any room for any of us to be sitting on the sidelines while others work. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. We need to pray that the Lord will send forth harvest, but we also need to be willing to go into the harvest ourselves. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Is that your attitude about saving the lost tonight? Is that your attitude about teaching people the pathway of righteousness? That was the attitude in this scripture. That was the attitude of the woman. That was the attitude of Jesus willing to come down from heaven to seek and save the lost. That was the attitude of Paul and Peter and all those people that we read about. And countless many people or countless others from the time of the scriptures to us today. Is that my attitude and is that yours? Let that be our attitude tonight. Here am I, send me. Don't say, let other people do it. Let's be workers in the kingdom of, of the Lord. I hope that the lessons have been beneficial for you. I hope that you've got some out of it. I hope that you're challenged to be more evangelistic. We're going to offer an invitation at this time. If you have a spiritual need that the congregation can help you with, we're going to offer that invitation as we stand and sing. If you have a spiritual need, come.